You're listening to This Month in HIV, the body's monthly podcast discussion about the latest, most important developments in HIV. For more information on this podcast, including a full transcript, visit us on the web at www.thebody.com slash HIV month. Hi, I'm Miles Helfand, editorial director of thebody.com. For years now, it's been clear that HIV-positive people are especially prone to developing unusual increases of fat in specific parts of their bodies. What's been less clear is exactly what a person with this type of fat gain, known as lipohypertrophy, can do about it. A new option, approved by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, may change that. Its name is Agrifta, known generically as tessamorelin. It's the first drug approved specifically for use by HIV-positive people with lipohypertrophy. Agrifta doesn't treat all kinds of fat gain. It focuses on reducing fat specifically in the belly area, but its approval is historic nonetheless. Daniel Berger, MD, has been one of the HIV clinicians involved in studies of Agrifta. He's the medical director and founder of North Star Medical Center in Chicago, as well as a clinical associate professor at the University of Illinois Chicago College of Medicine. I recently talked to him by phone about how Agrifta works, who should take it, and what else we know to date about the treatment of lipohypertrophy. Let's start with the basics. What is Agrifta? Agrifta, or uh, previously was known as tesamorelin or growth hormone releasing factor, is a medication that was studying HIV-infected individuals with increased belly fat that is in the form of uh, visceral adiposity or fat accumulation. In other words, it was investigated in patients who had fat accumulation within the abdominal body cavity. And by the way, we also use the term uh, lipohypertrophy to denote the same thing. But anyhow, the studies with Agrifta were designed to examine whether patients with visceral fat accumulation can take Agrifta safely but specifically uh, using it as a strategy to obtain reductions of visceral abdominal fat. So this drug is important and is going to be used for HIV-infected patients who are developing or have had increases in belly or abdominal visceral fat. About how many people are we talking about here, people with HIV who have this excess fat in their belly? There's been a number of studies that looked at the prevalence in abdominal fat accumulation and I believe that of the three or four studies that I'm familiar with, it's anywhere between 25 to 35% of patients that are currently on antiviral therapy that we have observed abdominal fat accumulation. Is there any particular person that you found that it's more likely to have it than other people? Well, we know from uh, back in the early days of the epidemic, or the earlier days, I should say, when certain medications that were more metabolically toxic were used and quite often we saw or observed lipohypertrophy or fat accumulation more often. So, for example, protease inhibitor known as Crixivan or indinavir was a medication that was quite famous, and in fact uh, people often referred to the manifestation as Crix belly. But since we uh, are not using that medication currently, uh, some of the newer protease inhibitors we are less likely to cause the problem. There are other medications such as nucleosides that have also been found to have similar problems in terms of uh, metabolic problems, including 
fat redistribution. Which specific nucleosides are you talking about there? In terms of the medications, you know, I should back up a little bit and just say that it goes towards an understanding as to the cause or mechanisms of this fat redistribution problem. We feel that medications that have mitochondrial toxicities play a greater role in being associated with the problem. And mitochondria is the small organ within each cell. There's the metabolic powerhouse of each cell. And fat tissue is actually very rich in mitochondria. So certain nucleosides, such as the thymidine analogs, serot, DDI, and AZT, have an inhibitory effect on uh, mitochondrial DNA polymerase gamma, which is the principal enzyme responsible for mitochondrial DNA synthesis. And it can also have other negative effects on protein synthesis. Thus, uh, nucleoside thymidine analogs pose a significant obstacle for normal metabolism and leads to increased fat redistribution changes in HIV. And it's worth noting that there's been development of newer agents, most being thought of as being less mitochondrial toxic or, in other words, being mitochondrial friendly. And these medication toxicities overall have been much less than what was used back in the day. So then we're looking at a situation then where this drug is maybe most likely to be used by people who have been on treatment for a long period of time then, right? Yes, but there's this strong evidence that both HIV infection as well as the specific medications are associated with the problem. In fact, an early study showed that abdominal fat changes occurred in patients even before starting on treatment or fat accumulation such as posterior neck fat or buffalo humps even been seen in people before they started on their medications. And we also know that there's a lot of host factors that are also associated with the problem that are probably independent of the type of medications that a person uses. So for example, if one is older, an older age individual, there are higher rates of lipodystrophy that we often see uh, more lipodystrophy in Caucasians as opposed to other races, that both males and females, although they can show either or any of the manifestations of lipodystrophy, females have a greater uh, instance of having uh, fat accumulation, and men have are more apt to have facial atrophy. And we also know that the lower CD4 counts and higher viral loads that patients have before they get started on treatment in some studies have also been shown to be a factor. So all in all, the fat changes in HIV is fairly common, and its causes being multiple and complicated, regardless of the fact that people are on certain types of medications, we believe that some individuals are still going to develop this problem. And since many people are also living longer and have been HIV positive for a very long time, most of those individuals already have the manifestation. So I believe that the GRIFT is going to be used uh, widely and, uh, and hopefully provide benefit to a wide number of individuals that are HIV positive on treatment. All right, so let's get into the nitty a bit, if not the gritty as well. How well does a GRIFTA actually work against people with HIV who have developed the abdominal, the visceral fat? From the studies, and there were two studies that were designed to look at uh, patients with HIV, and those studies basically looked at patients that were on antiviral therapy and they were on stable antiviral therapy, that is, and that had bad accumulation problems and that was measured by a waist circumference that was at least 95 centimeters 
and, uh, and a waist-hip ratio that was at least a certain measurement of 0.94 was looked at, and those patients uh, could also have some mild type of diabetes, in other words, diabetes that didn't require uh, medication treatment. And so what was seen in the study was that patients that were on Agrifta were likely to get somewhere between a 17 and 18% reduction in uh, visceral fat. In other words, uh, there was a significant loss of visceral fat compared to the control arm or the placebo. And the way that the study uh, was designed, it was a very interesting design in that for the first 24 weeks, uh, patients were randomized two to one being on a grifta versus a placebo. But at 24 weeks, patients that were on placebo automatically were then put on a grifta treatment. And patients that were on the Agrifta treatment arm at the start of the study, they were re-randomized three to one in uh, staying on Agrifta versus going towards a placebo. And so what you have was that patients were at least on treatment for 24 weeks, and many of them were on treatment for 48 weeks. And the visceral fat loss that was observed in the patients were seen and persisted throughout the course of the study as long as one was on Prezista patients that went off of Prezista that were re-randomized to uh, the control arm or placebo then tended to show a reversal of those uh, improvements. Well, you said Prezista. You meant Agrifta, right? Agrifta. Because okay. that would be fascinating if it were Prezista that was the secret, <laughs> the secret weapon. So this is a drug that then once you start taking it, you need to keep taking it in order for it to continue to be effective. We believe that. However, Studies really haven't been done looking at long-term usage of Agrifta, and this is uh, one question or concern in terms of uh, it's in clinicians' minds or in physicians' minds as to how long you need to keep your patient on Agrifta, whether you can stop it, or questions about maybe you can put a patient on a lower maintenance dose in order to uh, maintain the benefits. But as I mentioned, uh, these studies haven't been done, and I'm hopeful that there will be uh, more studies designed uh, looking at some of these questions. Now, you said that the, the drug appeared to reduce that excess abdominal fat by around 18%. What does that translate to in real terms? If you're looking at a person, or if, or if a person who has that kind of fat gain and is looking at him or herself in the mirror after having taken Agrifta for, say, that 26-week period, and they're looking at themselves after 26 weeks, are they re- going to really notice that 18% difference? Oh, yes. It's actually a dramatic change. And actually, patients in the studies who had more fat accumulation tended to do even better. But there was also um, body image that was studied in terms of patients themselves having to answer questionnaires. And patients were able to say, or at least it was seen in the study, that body image, what's called body image distress or belly profile, improved more with the Grifta use than in placebo. Oh, and so, uh, so and it's so almost patients, a mental health impact there. Yes, and seeing patients in a study from my experience while I was seeing patients coming in uh, after they were experiencing this drop in belly fat, it was very remarkable and sometimes often dramatic for me to see. And patients were extremely happy 
it wasn't just noticeable, but they were very happy with the results. How often do people need to take the drug, and how is it taken? Patients in the study were taking uh, 2 milligrams of Agrifta by subcutaneous injection uh, every day. Where specifically did they inject? They were injecting into their subcutaneous belly or abdomen. In other words, uh, they pinch their abdomen and just give themselves a small injection, so it's not unlike an insulin shot. And you said that was once a day? And that's once a day, yeah. Are there any particular concerns about time of day you need to take it or whether it needs to be stored in a particular way or whether it interacts with any other drugs? I'm not sure much about drug interactions. There may have to be more studies looking at all the specific medications, but understanding the fact that growth hormone releasing factor or Agrifta is mediated by insulin-like growth factor or IGF-1, which is also not unlike serostim, and that agents being used widely without a lot of concerns about drug interactions, I would believe that this agent would also be uh, safe to be used with many medications and all the antiretroviral agents. Also in the study, patients were taking a wide variety of different antiretroviral regimens, and there wasn't any problem in terms of uh, what their regimens were. But obviously, uh, they may have to be looking at specific other medications that people take that may have to be looked into. This drug is specifically studied in people with excess abdominal fat. What's the extent of knowledge as far as how well or not well it will work for any other form of fat gain throughout the body? Well, there's been a lot of questions about that, and there's been a lot of questions about people with different types of fat accumulation, normal people that have... For example, as subcutaneous fat as opposed to visceral fat, you know, obviously this drug has not been studied for that situation. But suffice it to say that uh, medication uh, Agrifta it showed a very uh, specifically uh, targeted effect on visceral fat with reductions. It didn't show any specific changes with limb fat that was significant in any way, nor uh, in terms of subcutaneous fat. So we're saying limbs, well, certainly not for lipoatrophy, the reverse of the situation that we've been describing till now. It sounds like so no impact on people who have lost fat in their face or their arms or their legs or their butt. You were referring to buffalo hump a little bit before. Is there any indication it can help with that kind of a complication? It wasn't reported in the study, and it hasn't been studied significantly. There have been uh, some reports of one or two patients that I've heard about that have had uh, fat accumulation, such as a uh, buffalo hump, that did get benefit uh, when they were on the Grifta study. But again, um, this wasn't studied, and it's hard to make any big conclusions from that. True. But regardless, we're talking about a situation here where it's not like this drug is going to just, if you have a very large belly, it doesn't sound like this drug is going to eliminate it completely. It just may make it better enough that it causes a significant improvement in your quality of life from the sounds of it? Absolutely. I think that the patients often have depression and feelings of isolation when their body image has been altered to that degree. And also patients often being concerned about that may have reasons not to take their uh, antiviral medications. In other words, it may be associated with poor adherence to medications. And so if having a medication or treatment that would combat the problem of fat accumulation or body image problems, then patients should have less depression, less uh, feelings of isolation, and better adherence to medications. And I think that this was 
something that was highlighted during, in fact, the, the FDA meeting when several patients came forward and testified about how they felt about the fact that they were on a grift uh, during the studies and what they got out of being on treatment. Where is the threshold then? How does a person with HIV or uh, a doctor who's treating a person who's HIV positive, how can either of you know where is the point at which a drug like Agrifta is something that's worth trying? We know that Agrifta causes or has the potential to cause a reduction in visceral fat accumulation. And we know that visceral fat accumulation is part of the syndrome of lipodystrophy that has also been associated with increased cardiovascular risk. And we know that patients, as they live longer and are aging, we're seeing a higher rate of cardiovascular problems in this patient population. And so a physician that's seeing patients with HIV infection, I think if they're cognizant about the problem, in other words, if they're seeing a patient who's developing the problem and the patient's complaining about it or the patient's already noticing it, which is often how the problem emerges in the exam room, I think it behooves the physician to consider uh, what the patient themselves is experiencing and to weigh out the benefits versus the downside, which appears, at least from studies, to be minimal. In other words, patients who have the problem and are somewhat concerned about it and a little frustrated by it, those patients, you know, any patient with uh, visceral fat accumulation can be a candidate for uh, treatment with Grifta. And even patients that have mild diabetes problems can be a candidate. And I believe, although the study hasn't looked at specific patients with diabetes that require treatment, there is some foundation from which to believe that a grift or a tesamorlin can be treated even in those patients safely. And you can't look away from the fact that a grifta by reducing visceral fat adiposity, may also have some benefits in terms of reducing the overall cardiovascular risk to our patients. And in fact, in the studies, there was some reduction in uh, triglycerides as well as the cholesterol levels. And so I, I believe that Agrifta would be uh, useful in many patients with HIV infection who have uh, visceral fat accumulation. There were a couple of concerns that you had mentioned the minimal long-term risks of the drugs. Those did come up a little bit during the advisory committee meeting that met a couple of months prior to the approval of Agrifta. It was an FDA advisory committee, and although they did vote unanimously, it was 16 to nothing that the drug should be approved. They did raise a couple of those potential long-term issues. Can you talk about them for just a moment? Sure. So there are some uh, adverse effects that were observed during the studies, but in general, they seem to have been well-tolerated and manageable. So patients taking Agrifta are more likely to get these effects because of how Agrifta works, as it increases the levels of insulin-like growth factor, or what's known as IGF-1. It's important to understand that some patients can experience events such as uh, some joint aches, some mild swelling in their extremities, uh, such as their ankles, or get some mild stiffness in their joints. Uh, even some stiffness in their hands and feet, uh, which I found uh, generally uh, improves with some small exercises that tend to loosen uh, the joints up. But some patients also had some infection site reactions or some mild redness or tenderness at the injection site, which also clears up fairly quickly. And it should be noted that there were a very small number of patients who appeared to have some allergic reactions, such as one would expect the development of hives, etc., but what you're referring to in terms of 
other concerns that came up at the FDA meeting, an important finding is that in the study, what was seen was that patients with mild diabetes, those not on medications I mentioned earlier, did not show an exacerbation of diabetes, but there were some small number of patients that experienced new diabetic symptoms. And in my opinion, this is a very small number, and also I think I believe in the opinion of the advisory group, obviously it is a concern. However, when looking at the total profile of the medication and the risks versus benefits, I believe that the uh, committee felt that the benefits far outweighed the small number of patients that may have experienced new symptoms. And I believe that in terms of any other severe effects that would concern me, I'm not terribly concerned personally. I'm going to be monitoring my patients' blood sugars, as I believe other clinicians will be, especially people that are diabetic. And from what I mentioned before, the GRIFT has not really been studied in patients who are on diabetes treatment, and this would be useful to investigate more closely, uh, hopefully in phase four or post-marketing studies. One other thing, there's also been a concern that because the mechanism for GRIFTA is that it increases the IGF-1 levels, that being a growth factor, that it may uh, cause development of cancers. But there's been no evidence, at least with the GRIFTA treatment at present, in that occurring. But however, I think as uh, patients use this uh, more long-term, it would be very important to continue documenting and to uh, continue monitoring our patients to learn more about Agrifta. There was also something mentioned at some point during that advisory meeting about people developing antibodies to Agrifta and as a result, over time, having the drug become less effective? Yes. Actually, um, in the studies, I believe somewhere around 50% of patients uh, developed IgG antibodies to Agrifta. However, uh, despite that, most of the patients uh, continue to derive benefit. There were a a very small number of patients that I mentioned earlier that had allergic reactions, and all those people that developed an allergic reaction also had those antibodies to Agrifta. But at this time, uh, it's not known whether the antibodies to uh, Agrifta has any uh, relevance as to whether there will be uh, any relevance to its efficacy. So we've talked a lot about Agrifta. Agrifta is the first drug that's been approved for this use, really to treat any kind of fat gain, specifically in HIV-positive people, right? Yes. Are there any other drugs out there, whether approved or in late development, that work similarly to Agrifta? There have been a lot of medications uh, that have been looked at to use to treat uh, lipohypertrophy or fat accumulation. But as you say, uh, currently there's been no other drug or a medication that has ever been proved to treat uh, visceral fat accumulation. So Agrifta is definitely the first. In terms of uh, what can be done for people, other things that what were looked at uh, that could be done for patients with fat accumulation, as I said earlier during this interview, certain antiviral agents can be metabolically unfriendly, and some uh, studies have looked at switching therapy, in other words, switching to another sensitive or effective regimen of medications. However, when these uh, switch studies were done, the effects were modest and sometimes not consistent. So currently, we have the good fortune of having many newer agents that were approved in the recent years, and most of these therapies are felt to be patient-friendly treatments. So switching is now very limited use. Other things, such as, for example, anabolic steroids was looked at. Low testosterone levels, for example, is seen in 
HIV-positive patients and are associated with visceral abdominal fat accumulation. But while we've sometimes used testosterone replacement in our patients, these individuals show increases in lean body mass with testosterone or muscle tissue. It didn't really result in decreases in visceral abdominal fat in our patients. Other things are growth hormone or serostim has been studied, and growth hormone resulted in significant decreases in visceral fat. However, serostim did not get approved for use in this circumstance, and we believe that this was due to the severity of side effects that was associated with serostim that included significant development of diabetes or changes that led to uh, imbalance or increased blood sugars. Other treatments included other medications, such as uh, medications used to treat diabetes like metformin. Uh, Metformin showed only a non-significant change. Other diabetes medicines, such as the insulin-sensitizing agents, troglitazone, for example, was looked at, but that also didn't show a significant improvement and was eventually withdrawn from the market due to liver problems. Um, Other things that we try to do for our patients One thing that I try to stress with my patients is changes in diet can have some benefits, and I've often advised patients to reduce fat and certain types of sugars, such as giving patients an example of perhaps going on what's called a Mediterranean diet and also have smaller, more frequent meals as opposed to large meals and combine this with exercise. And both diet and exercise have independently shown to decrease abdominal visceral fat and improve lipids such as cholesterol and triglycerides and also benefit better glucose control, and all of these, again, leading to uh, reduced cardiovascular risk, which I think is a big focus uh, for our patients as they live longer now. But in terms of diet and exercise, it's sometimes difficult to get patients to get into the habit of making those kinds of changes. Well, true. Well, I guess that's similar to the, if you go outside of of the realm of fat gain that might be caused by HIV or HIV medications, that's the debate that seems to go on uh, a fair bit among people who have a lot of fat gain and then decide to resort to liposuction, for instance, instead of of a diet or a nutrition or exercise change in order to resolve the problem. Exactly. But in the case of when we're talking about this particular kind of fat gain, doesn't this tend to be something that people don't really have much control over? Well, true. I mean, certainly if if it's due to uh, their HIV infection and due to medication, there is a certain amount of non-control or, or in terms of fat accumulation developing. But I, I strongly believe that individuals who maintain an exercise regimen that subscribe to a diet such as Mediterranean-type diet have a lot less potential for developing the problem in general. They can develop lipoatrophy, in other words, loss of fat, but in terms of lipoaccumulation, I believe that they're less likely or the severity of what they'll see will be much less than seen otherwise because from just a logical sense, if you're exercising normally, you're going to be burning body fat, oxidizing free fatty acids, and your body's going to be working more metabolically efficiently, and you'll be using your nutrients more efficiently and your cells and mitochondria will be working more efficiently. So then to take a step back then, we're looking at a situation where we, we still have people developing or continuing to have this excess belly fat, the visceral adiposity that you had mentioned, and we suddenly have this new option that's on the table that can be used to potentially treat it, at least in part. So. For you, as an HIV doctor, you know, who actually treats HIV-positive people, 
what would you recommend for your HIV-positive patients who might be developing or who might want to avoid in the first place fat gain? Does it start with the diet and nutrition? Is that what you focus on and then only resort to a grifta later on? Or is there a point at which you're like, you know what, I know this person has been on treatment for 10 years, they've had this for a while, I should just start them on this immediately? I think it's going to be uh, patient-specific, uh, knowing your patients and each patient uh, taking them as an individual. So for a patient that has a lousy eating habits and doesn't exercise, obviously you want to target that. You want to get them to get into better uh, habits. And also, as I mentioned earlier, we're always looking at the overall benefit in terms of reducing uh, cardiovascular risk for our patients. So that's very much consistent with that line of thinking. And, you know, as, as you put it, knowing your patients and say, you know, you've been seeing a patient for um, several years and they've already tried to do a diet, you've already talked to them about diet, or you know that they're probably not going to be good at that just by just knowing their, understanding their personality and their habits, I think that uh, it's reasonable to try a Grifta. But again, I always believe that we should be counseling our patients in terms of diet and exercise wherever possible. And also in terms of reducing cardiovascular risk, patients have elevated lipids. They're on statin, for example, that if they're a smoker, try to counsel them and help them to try to quit smoking. All of that is part of seeing people that are HIV positive and uh, trying to reduce the long-term complications that's seen in the disease now as people are living longer. I think that a Grifta is an option for patients that have visceral adiposity, and you can use it as a first line, or you can use it in combination with some dietary habits, or for people that you're not going to be able to effectively change your dietary habits, I think a grift is an option as well, and I think it's going to be widely used. Yeah, and we'll see how things pan out, particularly over the long term, as people begin to use it more frequently. All right, well, Dr. Berger, thank you very much. Daniel Berger is the medical director and the founder of North Star Medical Center in Chicago. He's also a clinical associate professor at the College of Medicine at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Dr. Berger, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Miles. The opinions expressed by hosts or interviewees in this podcast do not constitute professional advice, should not be considered substitutes for professional services, and do not necessarily represent the opinions of Body Health Resources Corporation or its sponsors. Please see the full disclaimer online at thebody.com. If you have comments or questions, please contact us. You've reached the end of this month in HIV's program. To read the transcript or let us know what you think of this program, please visit www.thebody.com/hivmonth. <laughs>